Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, the lone countywide issue on the upcoming May 3rd primary ballot is a renewal of the mental health services levy. Adamus Director Precious Stubbe and developmental pediatrician Dr. Amy Orr make their case to voters. Also this morning, one of the most sobering statistics in the aftermath of the pandemic is the dramatic increase in mental health-related issues among young people. And part of the solution may be as simple as involvement in after-school programs. And the Findlay Hancock County Community Foundation kicking off their 30th anniversary celebration with a mobile story walk that will travel the county over the coming weeks. We'll get details. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Tuesday, April 19, 2022. Today is National Hanging Out Day. <laughs> just, just hanging out. Just hanging out today. It is Bicycle Day. It is Humorous Day and National Garlic Day. So if you're looking for a reason to celebrate, there you have several to choose from. Bicycle Day. But what we are really celebrating is a transportation that's uh, much more elaborate than just a bicycle. So this is the uh, story travelers now no longer required, most travelers, not all, but most travelers no longer required to mask up. Uh, The uh, TSA says it will not enforce the federal mask mandate. Here's the thing. The mask mandate technically has not been rescinded. It has been ruled uh, null and void by this federal judge in Florida who said the CDC overstepped its authority in issuing the mask mandate. Which, this has been in place for two years. So, why are they just now ruling? I thought it was kind of interesting that the judgment came down, the ruling came down from the court, just after the very busy Easter and spring break travel period. So, I don't know if the court was kind of hedging its bets uh, a little bit, uh, waiting until after the huge influx of uh, people just to be on the safe side? I don't know. But anyway, this is where we are now. The federal, this federal judge in Florida says the CDC overstepped its authority in issuing mask mandate. And immediately, immediately, uh, most of the major airlines have rescinded their mask mandate accordingly. United, Delta, Southwest, American, Alaska, and JetBlue all have made masks optional. I didn't see on the write-up any uh, mention of Spirit. I know a lot of folks buy, uh, fly Spirit, the ultra-low-cost air carrier. I could not. I didn't see anything prominently displayed on uh, the Spirit Airlines website this morning when I checked. So, because the airlines can still implement a mask mandate on their own if they so choose, this ruling only impacts the CDC universal mask mandate. Same thing with airports. There are some airports that may not necessarily lift their mask mandate immediately. Some have, uh, but others have not. For example, uh, I looked at the uh, Detroit Metro uh, airport website. It still says on their website that face masks are required at, uh, at Detroit Airport. But that being said, that information on their website, it says, was last updated a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the same thing for John Glenn International Airport in Columbus. I checked their website and it still says uh, masks are required, but that information has not been recently updated. So that may or may not be the case. So the bottom line is, if you are traveling... um. Don't be surprised if you still have to wear your mask in some places. This is just the federal mask mandate that has been, uh, I guess, nullified. Again, it hasn't been rescinded. The CDC technically has not has not rescinded the uh, order. They will just no longer enforce it because of this federal judge's ruling. So there's a lot of nuance in this. Um that still has yet to be sorted out. We'll see where it all lands. By the way, Amtrak also lifted its mask mandate. If you so inclined to travel by train, uh, Uber and Lyft plan to keep the mandate for now. 
So if you're riding in an Uber or a Lyft, you still technically supposed to uh, wear your mask, although individual drivers uh, sometimes are ambivalent to it one way or the other. So depending on your driver, they may uh, allow you to uh, forego the mask and what have you. But but technically, those uh, mask mandates still uh, in effect for uh, ride-sharing devices. But again, it's going to be on an individual basis now instead of uh, across the board. So... Big, big news there. Uh, Some of the other first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. It's getting pricier to go out and eat. Uh, uh, Average menu prices. This is uh, data uh, that is out this week from the American Restaurant Association. Average menu prices increased 6.9% nationwide in the past year. Fast food restaurant costs rose even more by an average of 8%. So getting more expensive to go out to eat. Which I think we all inherently knew, but that is uh, data that confirms it. Kind of interesting. Uh, are you one of those people that works out in the morning? Like the very first thing you do, you get up, you go for a run, go to the gym, do a little exercise before you start your day. A lot of people do that. Well, here is something you will need to know. Apparently, breaking a sweat and getting out of your comfort zone, which is usually the key to a meaningful workout, may not be all it's cracked up to be. A new national survey suggests that many Americans are misinterpreting the old saying, no pain, no gain. Uh, Researchers from Orlando Health say close to one in five people say that they often experience pain while exercising. Uh, 18% also habitually push through the pain rather than Stopping, resting up, and healing up. And that is what you should be doing. You should be stopping. You should be... Pain, physical pain, uh, is a sign from your body that something is wrong. And uh, an exercise exercise session, they say, should not feel like a a test in pain tolerance. Uh, The uh, poll was put together by sports medicine physicians and orthopedic surgeons at the Orlando Health Jewett Orthopedic Institute included more than 2,000 adults over the age of 18. And researchers say pushing through sharp pain during workouts is not a healthy choice. So something to keep in mind uh, with respect to that. There is there is some truth to that uh, old saying, no pain, no gain. You want to push your, your muscles, some soreness in your muscles is different than pain when you have overdone it so you need to recognize the difference and know when enough is enough as far as that goes so keep in mind you morning workout gurus weirdos (laughs) i only say that because with my work schedule i don't have the opportunity to go for a workout before i come into work if i did that i'd have to go to Go to bed at like 6 o'clock in the evening, get up at midnight. So I do that, but anyway. Uh, this, I first of all, I, I'm going to preface this next item by saying this is of a distinct adult nature. So if you have little ones in the room, I don't know, maybe your little ones aren't awake yet. But if you do have little ones in the room, you might want to shuffle them into another room out of earshot for this piece here. But it was so interesting that I thought, I, I've got to share this. I saw it on the uh, on the newswire. Apparently, American men are <laughs> are in 59th place worldwide when it comes to how do I word this? Male endowment. <laughs> when compared to men from a, from around the world, American men fall in 59th place. Um, this is an analysis of Google data from <laughs> Google really does know everything about us. Doesn't they? No, they, they really know everything about us. Uh, this is an analysis of Google data from 86 different countries. Uh, the data shows that men in Ecuador have the, uh, are most blessed, shall we say at 6.93 inches on average. That's what it says. Uh, Cameroon is next, 6.56 inches. Bolivia 
in third at an even six and a half inches. Uh, Sudan and Haiti round out the top five. So Haiti is just a terrible place to live. Haiti is a terrible place to live, but they do have that going for them. (laughs) Apparently. Uh, The U.S. came in 56th place um, at a measurement of 5.35 inches, uh, just below India at 5.4 and just above Japan at 5.34. Taiwan came in 85th place and Cambodia last place (laughs) at 2.95 inches. So... my goodness <clears throat> it is interesting though isn't it i mean this is this is interesting stuff um so anyway i've said all i'm gonna say on that uh, research but it was definitely one of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day so i felt i must share and you can bring the kids back into the room now and how about this among the first things you need to know this morning apparently taylor swift is getting her own bug No, 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 not a Volkswagen Beetle. Uh, Taylor Swift is getting an insect named after her. Uh, Folks along the East Coast can now check out the new, well, not an insect. Uh, This is a millipede. Uh, So technically not an insect, but what most of us would call a bug. Folks along the East Coast can now check out the new Tennessee native millipede species, Nanaria Swiftae, entomologist, and self-described Swifty, Derek Hennan, wanted to honor his favorite singer by naming a newly discovered anthropod uh, after the uh, star. Arthropod. And I said anthropod. That's, that's wrong. Arthropod. Uh, let me read that again. Entomologist and self-described Swifty, Derek Hennan, wanted to honor the singer by naming a newly discovered arthropod after the star. He tells the Huffington Post... That uh, Ms. Swift's music brought him joy and helped him through rough times, so he wanted to show his appreciation (laughs) the the only way he knew how. So, I'm sure she's thrilled. Taylor Swift uh, now has a bug named after her. Now you know. There you go. Some of the uh, most interesting and definitely some of the most buzzworthy stories of the day to get your Tuesday morning started. WFIN News, I'm John Marshall. Your WTOL 11 weather, cloudy and windy today with high 41, decreasing clouds tonight with a low of 30. The Findlay Police Department is warning the public about a scam involving someone claiming to be with AEP Ohio. Police say the caller tells the potential victim that AEP is upgrading meters in their neighborhood and that their electric bill is past due. The scammer advises that during the, quote, upgrade, their power will be turned off if they don't pay their past due bill during the call. The police department says this is a common scam tactic and anyone who receives such a call should simply hang up. Those with questions about their bill should contact AEP directly at a trusted number. Support is growing for Ohio and other states to become hands-free, meaning people would be prohibited from holding a cell phone while driving. New research from Nationwide Insurance shows 88% of people in a new survey support legislation that would discourage and reduce distracted driving. 86% say they want laws that specifically prohibit cell phone use while driving. Now, Nationwide has renewed its push for all 50 states to enact hands-free primary enforcement laws that would allow authorities to ticket people who are holding their phones while behind the wheel. So far, only 24 states have laws like that. ONN's Angela Ann reporting. Bluffton historian Fred Steiner will be giving a presentation at the Finley-Hancock County Public Library about what became the story of the century for Bluffton residents. Every town has a claim to fame. Bluffton's claim is uh, public enemy number one, John Dillinger. In 1933, he robbed Citizens National Bank of $2,100, and that five-minute episode became the story of the century for Bluffton. Steiner's Dillinger presentation will be held Wednesday night at 6 at the library. An Ohio judge is blocking the enforcement of a state law that could force the closure of surgical abortion clinics in Dayton and Cincinnati. For the second time, the judge granted a preliminary injunction to keep the measure from being enforced up until June 21st. The ACLU and Planned Parenthood of Southwest Ohio have sued to stop the bill they say creates constitutional conflicts and unwarranted health care restrictions. 
I'm John Marshall for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Well, it turns out we misspoke a bit. Uh, Animus Director uh, Precious Stubbe is uh, a bit under the weather this morning. And uh, so we are joined uh, in the studio this morning by developmental pediatrician Dr. Amy Orr. Uh, talking about the renewal of the mental health services levy, which, as we mentioned, is the lone countywide issue that voters will see on the May 3rd primary ballot. Dr. Orr, thanks very much for uh, dropping by. We certainly appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Kind of flying solo today. Yes, so, uh, I am. <laughs> um, the mental, now, again, the mental health services levy is a renewal. This is, uh, this is not new money, is that correct? Yes, this is correct. This is a renewal of the previous mental health levy okay. um, that provides services through the Adamus board to people who are dealing with all sorts of mental health issues in our community. Let's talk a little bit about some of those resources that are available because of these dollars. Sure. So the, um, the major contractors that are provided with services through the mental health levy are a Renewed Mind, which is an adult outpatient addiction treatment program, um, Century Health, which provides adult crisis intervention, residential treatment, case management, peer support, mental health and substance abuse disorder counseling, the Family Resource Center, um, which provides youth crisis intervention, youth mental health and substance abuse disorder counseling, school-based services, preventive education, and youth-led prevention. Focus on Friends, which is a recovery support, peer support, and recovering housing uh, for people with substance abuse issues, as well as NAMI of Hancock County, the mental health education support, peer-to-peer, family-to-family. So a very wide variety of services that are provided under this Adamus umbrella. uh, That's a lot of uh, resources for the community. And a couple of uh, uh, points to make with respect to that. How does that compare to other communities, particularly communities this size, in terms of the wealth of resources that are available? I would say for a community of our size, we have a tremendous amount of resources. I think what's obvious from this list of resources that Adamus encompasses is that we have provisions to help people with substance abuse disorders, both with medical help and therapeutic help, as well as peer-to-peer and sort of uh, housing help and help with the necessities of daily living that people may need. We also have a fairly intensive adult mental health system, as well as a youth-oriented mental health care system, um, which I think for a community of our size is is fairly unique and I think is very important that it's preserved. And when we talk about the uh, youth programs, that obviously mm-hmm. is the your uh, particular area of interest yes. uh, in your uh, line of work. And why is that so important to maintain, in particular, those uh, services? Okay, well, first I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm actually a general pediatrician, not a developmental pediatrician, okay. which, and there is a difference, but I do, as all general pediatricians do, deal with a lot of developmental and behavioral pediatrics within my practice. Um, so the way pediatricians look at things is we look to prevent problems from happening. Um, we have a great opportunity to take children who are, for the most part, healthy young individuals and try to propel them on a path to be healthy adults. It's much more challenging to take an adult with significant problems, be it mental, physical, or emotional, Mm -hmm. and bring them back to health. That is a much harder ask than to take a child who is basically healthy all around and continue them on that path. So mental health resources are critical for children. If we can take kids who are struggling and help them through this, give them the services they need, give their families the services that they need, we can end up with children who, as adults, are much more productive, are much happier, are able to form lasting and healthy relationships and build their own healthy families and to really stop cycles of poverty of undereducation, of underemployment, of mental illness, of physical illness. Um, we have a great opportunity to do that. So in my opinion, supporting pediatric mental health 
um, is one of the real critical missions of the Atomist Board. It, it is uh, important, I think, to to focus on that or to highlight that because uh, so often we and and maybe the pandemic changed that a little bit because we recognize uh, that uh, kids can uh, suffer the ill effects of uh, uh, mental health uh, issues, depression, anxiety, and so on. A lot of parents have seen that during the course of the pandemic. It's something we're going to be talking about a little bit later on in the program, but um, so oftentimes we sort of overlook that and think of kids as being resilient and you know, what do they have to worry about you know that that kind of thing and it is important to recognize that like you said you get these kids while they're a, a clean slate if you will and uh, you can break those cycles and you can raise them to be uh, really well adjusted adults yeah and I think that's the goal I think I think that's the goal with all health care physical health care mental health care mm-hmm. spiritual health care yeah it's to make people whole to keep them whole and it's prevention is much easier in my opinion than going back and trying to fix a lot of ingrained problems um, when people reach adulthood yeah that, that's true whether you're talking about uh, people or a car or a house or anything like exactly. that prevention uh, an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure there's a reason why that's a familiar saying that we've all heard before um, and and talk about uh, all of the programs that are available uh, to the community that are supported by the dollars uh, from this uh, from this levy. If those dollars were not there, many of those programs simply cease to exist. Yes, and it is important to realize that these programs form a backbone of the mental health services and community in Findlay. Um, without these types of resources, it would be very, very difficult for many people to get the services they require because insurance frequently does not cover the cost of these services. And a lot of the things that NAMI and FOCUS and FRC and all of these services cover mm-hmm. are expensive and time-consuming and time-intensive and personnel-intensive. So without the money coming from the levy, without taxpayer support, these services will cease to exist. And we will have a large swath of the population who will not be able to get the services that they need. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that's to the detriment of our society as a yeah, whole. The uh, community as a whole. Uh, we mentioned the pandemic and how that uh, really brought this and and kind of hit home with the number of mental health uh, issues and all of the uh, effects of the pandemic. Does that make this a bit of an easier sell? Um, what we've kind of collectively been through? I think that people are now more aware of the effects of mental health mm-hmm. on themselves, on their children, and others in the community. Um, I think there's been a lot of togetherness over the past couple of years, which mm-hmm. has its upsides. But I think also a lot of that has not been voluntary togetherness, and there's been a lot of stress in a lot of households. And I think people are becoming more empathetic to the fact that good mental health is a real cornerstone of overall good health Mm -hmm. and people are now coming to appreciate the fact that if they're not healthy mentally and emotionally the rest of their lives and everything and everyone around them is impacted again the uh, mental health services levy is uh, i believe issue three on the mm-hmm. uh, on the ballot it is the only countywide issue yes. that will be on the uh, may 3rd primary ballot and uh, again pediatrician dr amy Orr with us this morning kind of making the case uh, to voters uh, for a yes vote for mental health and as the tagline in the campaign is continuous continuing legacy of care which again we are very fortunate in this community to have the resources that we have Yes, we are very fortunate, and we are very fortunate because over the years, taxpayers have stepped up and voted to show that mental health is important to our community, and I would just encourage everybody, in spite of all the confusion around the elections this year, (laughs) to get out and vote because people who need mental health services are not going to go away if you don't vote they 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 still need the help they still need the services and our community still needs to do the right thing for people in need counting on uh voters uh on may 3rd and yes there will be a primary on may 3rd and this will be uh on that ballot and again it is a renewal it is not uh, new money it is a renewal that is correct of the uh, existing levy dr amy or thanks very much for dropping by we appreciate it thank you for your time 
Well, as we begin to write the postscript on the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the most sobering statistics from the U.S. Surgeon General is about the dramatic increase in mental health-related emergency room visits among teenagers, up 31% from 2019 to 2020, and 59% of parents say they are more worried about their child's emotional well-being today than they were two years ago. Jody Grant is executive director of the After School Alliance, out with a new study on those concerns and how to address them. And Jody, what did you find? So, uh, so our study, which could not be more timely, found that parents recognize that the positive youth development that's happening in after-school programs is absolutely essential right now for their kids um, in a holistic way. So absolutely, when you're looking at anxiety, sadness, Um, creating a place um, first and foremost where kids feel safe physically and mentally where they belong where they can pursue their passions where they're with caring adults and other youth um, can really make a huge difference in you know in their whole outlook now um, not to mention building professional skills for the future so I think it's really exciting to realize that parents recognize that after-school programs and summer learning programs are a big part of the solution. But what the report also found, which is um, disturbing, is that far too many of our parents don't have access to these programs. So it's 25 million kids. Their parents would like them to be in these programs, but either they don't exist in their community, they have wait lists, um, they can't afford them, transportation's an issue. And so we really hope that we can do more to bring down these barriers so that all kids that want to attend programs have that opportunity. Now, this is something that you have always known, that after school and summer programs uh, are beneficial to students in this way, uh, especially uh, those who may have issues of anxiety or uh, isolation, depression, that kind of thing. Because I, I think the for a lot of folks, they kind of think of, of after school or summer programs as just some way of uh, filling their time and keeping them out of trouble. But it goes much deeper than that. Uh, it does. And, and you're right. This is something that programs have always known that, you know, this is really kids are learning all the time and you don't need to be in a classroom with the teacher to be learning. And some of the really important skills that we all want to learn, like collaboration, teamwork, um, exploring things, whether they work out or not, um, getting out of your comfort zone, um, that's happening in the after-school space. I think what is different now is that as a nation, um, I hope that we're starting to recognize that um, these kinds of non-academic skills and support are really a and that we already have an infrastructure that can help address them. And and that was the other point that I wanted to make. To be clear, this is not a problem that comes solely out of the pandemic. These were actually issues before, which, which for the most part, I think went overlooked by many people. So in that sense, maybe it's a good thing we're finally talking about them. You mentioned availability as one barrier other than the availability, obviously, uh, which is a major issue, why aren't more students participating in these types of programs even when they are available? So, uh, yeah, I thank you so much for, for both those points. So the, the first point, which is that this was a crisis before the pandemic and the pandemic has just exacerbated it. Uh, but I think one of, one of the biggest challenges we have as a field and being on your show really helps with that is that people do not understand what today's after-school programs look like. And so, as you said, you know, they think it keep, they keep kids safe. They do. Um, it keeps kids out of trouble. They do. But it's so much more than that. And, you know, I'm always encouraging people to go see what their local after-school program does in person because they'll be blown away. And I think the more we educate people about all of the value that after-school programs provide, it will be easier to get the support to expand the number of kids they're serving. Now, you mentioned availability as one of the biggest hurdles uh, and the number of uh, students, the number of kids who don't have these types of programs available. What are you doing to do something about that? I know you have some strategic partnerships. Uh, National 4-H Council, I think, is one, and, and there are others as well, right? Right. So, so there's multiple things. I think, you know, given that cost is one of the big factors, one thing we're doing is trying 
to help programs tap into some of the federal COVID dollars. So encouraging parents and others to um, really help us convince school boards and school districts that have federal dollars um, to use it for partnerships. Other things like blending and grading, um, you know, one of one of the issues is always going to be staffing and one one resource is AmeriCorps and getting, you know, young adults to be working in after school programs. And the Department of Ed just announced that you could use COVID dollars to do federal matches. So blending, grading, weaving some of the existing funding sources. And I think partnerships are key. Um, you know, one of the great things about after school programs is they're really local and they're targeted on local needs and bringing in local resources. So looking to your entire community, businesses that might be able to provide internships and apprentices to kids, um, people that might be able to volunteer, other museums, libraries, parks and recs, other resources that are out there to bring them all together to serve our kids um, can make it easier to really maximize um, the resources and the value we're providing. Again, uh, so important to be talking about this now and really conversations that are in many cases long overdue. So how do folks get involved uh, in their communities to make this happen, to bring uh, more after-school programs and a greater variety of programs? Because as you mentioned, this is not a one-size-fits-all. It's going to look a little bit different in every community and even within the community, different kids with different interests and so on. So how do we work to expand these programs? So I have, I, I, I'm going to give um, your listeners three ideas, which is one, if you have time, um, go volunteer at your programs. Um, see what you can do. It may be through your work. It may be through your personal time. Um, in some places, it could be a short time commitment. In some places, it can be bigger, depending on what you have um, available to, to offer. But if you don't have time, or even if you do, um, raise your voice. The more we talk about the need for after school and spread the word, um, the more we educate people, um, encourage people to go look at what after school programs are doing, the more we can build support to grow them. And the third piece, um, I would say, is ask the kids. Um, we all know that this has been really tough on our kids, on um, the pandemic and pre-pandemic. And one of things we're trying to do at the After School Alliance is really elevate the voices of our youth to talk about what they need. And they will tell you they want these programs. Um, so sometimes they can be the most powerful voices out there to really encourage local communities to do more. Such a simple solution uh, in, in that respect. Uh, just ask the kids what they want and then go do it. Uh, Jody Grant is executive director of the After School Alliance. Where can folks find more uh, about this study and about the uh, resources that you have to make these programs happen? www.afterschoolalliance.org. Jody, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Uh, Me too. Thanks for having me. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. 60-year-old man, uh, New Jersey, says that he spent nearly three days in a dumpster. Uh, and how did this happen? It was a three days. And it, the man told police he saw a chair in the dumpster that he wanted <laughs> and fell in while he was trying to salvage it. <laughs> First of all, if you see furniture in a dumpster, best to leave it there. Just leave it there. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, he was eventually rescued after someone in a nearby apartment complex heard his cries for help. After three days, police say the man suffered minor injuries, adding that they can't really be sure how long he was actually in the dumpster. He said three days. But... Oh, we'll see. <laughs> you see furniture in a dumpster, just a general rule of thumb and just kind of a life hack. If you see furniture in a dumpster, leave it there. Moral of that story. Uh, everybody has a story about something that went wrong when they were first learning how to drive, right? And especially for those who are older, uh, it can be sometimes challenging. A 53-year-old woman with a learner's permit was driving, uh, with a licensed relative in the passenger seat when she mistook the gas pedal for the brake and plowed her Range Rover (laughs) 
Through a row of tombstones, they were uh, practicing driving in the local cemetery in Melrose, Massachusetts. <laughs> they were practicing driving in the cemetery. Well, I guess that uh, kind of makes sense. I mean, who are you going to hit? If <laughs> you can't really hurt anyone in the cemetery. <laughs> but she... Uh, Mistook the gas for the break and uh, plowed through a row of tombstones. Photos uh, from the scene show a mashed up, uh, smashed up vehicle on top of a pile of tombstones. The entire front bumper is torn from the car. The le- front left tire lying on the grass and the left side of the vehicle is completely crumpled. The police say the car needed to be towed from the scenes. Uh, the car needed to be towed from the scene. The gravestones put back in place by the public works department, but it could be costly to repair those who were uh, that were damaged, the crash being investigated further by the Melrose Police Department. <laughs> um, and I'm guessing she's probably not going for her driver's test anytime soon. Probably needs a little more practice there. But maybe not at the cemetery the next time. Uh, follow-up uh, from Easter... Uh, Sarasota, Sarasota County Sheriff's Department in Florida shared a video on their social media showing a massive alligator taking a leisurely stroll through a residential neighborhood in Venice on uh, Sunday morning. Uh, <laughs> apparently, the uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission was notified of the uh, gator sighting. Huge alligator just wandering the streets. But because the gator was just wandering the street and not really bothering anyone didn't cause any damage that they know of uh the uh, fish and wildlife conservation commission did not respond they just took note of the uh, sighting and that was pretty much it to the for the most part we don't believe that there was any you know damage or any problems with the uh, alligator but um for some reason the easter bunny didn't uh, visit that neighborhood Or maybe the Easter Bunny did deliver, uh, visit the neighborhood, and uh, that's why the gator was there, if you know what I mean. No, I'm just kidding. A um, couple of other items from the uh, broken news. From our neighbors to the north, a couple of uh, stories out of Canada. The Ministry of Health and Social Services in the province of Quebec has apologized after they accidentally tweeted out a link to a... Uh, an adult video instead of a government website with COVID-19 data. <laughs> the Canadian the Canadian Ministry of Health and Social Services tweeted a link uh, on Thursday that was supposed to send visitors to uh, some uh, the latest COVID-19 information. Instead, it was a, uh, a Pornhub foot fetish video. <laughs> Oops! These these two things are not the same. Um, more than a half hour passed before officials uh, were notified of the error and got it corrected. The ministry later tweeted, Due to a situation beyond our control, a link with inappropriate content was posted to our Twitter account. I don't know if I buy the situation beyond our control thing. I mean, it certainly was within your control to post the right link. <laughs> Uh, They go on to say, we are investigating the cause and we are sorry for the inconvenience. Um, Even though the link was corrected, of course, everything lives on online. Many people (laughs) screenshotted the the original link and so it is preserved for all eternity. And uh, elsewhere from uh, across our neighbors to the north, a woman in British Columbia uh, captured some video of a couple of bears having a wrestling match on her backyard trampoline. (laughs) That must have been quite a sight. This is your viral video of the day. You can go check this out online. Rose Waldron uh, lives in uh, Coquitlam, British Columbia, I think is how you pronounce it, and can be heard on the video, so much for the trampoline. Her husband, Doug, explained that the damage to the trampoline's netting and platform were minimal, but the weight of the bears caused the fiberglass rods supporting the trampoline to break. He said the bears are frequent visitors to the neighborhood, which is near the uh, Coquitlam River. So they're 
Used to having bears, but not so much wrestling on the trampoline. Bears having a good old time there. Uh, there you go. That is uh, today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Take WFIN wherever you go with our updated mobile apps for iPhone and Android. And now you can listen to us on your Alexa device. Get the app at WFIN.com or in the App Store or Google Play. Plus, enable Alexa by searching for WFIN under Skills and you'll soon be saying, Alexa, play 1330. WFIN. And the best part is the apps and skills are absolutely free. On the air at 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Online at WFIN.com and on your smartphone, tablet, and Alexa devices. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. It appears that Generation Z is stepping away from social media. The Zoomers, as they're known, uh, are you know we know that familiar sight of young people glued to their phones, but some twenty somethings are now taking a stand against all consuming apps like TikTok and Instagram, calling them toxic and obsessive. These young people say that they are regaining control of their time, regaining control of their lives by stepping away from the scroll, and the anti-app wave seems to be catching on. New research finds that Instagram is losing its grip on the next generation. According to a recent survey commissioned by investment bank Piper Sandler, only 22% of respondents between the ages of 7 and 22 named Instagram as their favorite app, 22%. For comparison, that number was 31% as recently as the spring of 2020. Uh, as one 20-year-old told the Washington Post, when you delete it, you realize... You don't need it. Now, I don't think that social media is necessarily going away anytime soon. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's too ingrained in who we are and how we share information, how we stay connected with others, especially those we don't see all the time, so on and so forth. I don't think that's going to necessarily change. However, this generation seems to be over it or at least putting it into better perspective maybe that's maybe that's the way we need to look at it not necessarily that they're over it they're just putting it in better perspective and at the end of the day that's probably a good thing Brian Treese is here from the Finley Hancock County Community Foundation, uh, president and CEO of the Community Foundation, embarking their 30th anniversary. We were just joking before we went on the uh, on the air. It uh, really gives you a, a sense of just how many, uh, how long 30 years is or isn't. Right, right. I immediately <laughs> thought about the 1970s yeah, and what was yeah, happening, and imagine my surprise when I realized 1992. <laughs> Was thirty years ago, 30 and years how ago. vividly I can remember so much from that year. We are all getting older, aren't oh we? Oh my goodness! Um, but at the same time, thirty years is uh, pretty doggone significant, right? It's it's hard to believe that our foundation started with one person's dream, and Dale Dorney, when he passed, he left as part of his estate uh, funds that he hoped would someday form a community foundation in Finley and Hancock County. And then in 1992, his dream came true. And we started as a supporting organization under the Cleveland Foundation, mm -hmm. and they helped us for several years. And three decades later, we have grown to over 500 individual funds. We have over $170 million in our endowment, and we've been able to grant more than $70 million to help our community. So the Community Foundation, for those who are not real familiar with like the inner workings of, of the you kind of a clearinghouse for those who want to set up uh, and establish funds uh, to do good works within the community. Is that kind of the, you know, Reader's Digest version of it? Uh, yes. Yeah, simply put, we invest donor dollars and then grant a portion of those every single year. Um, so the funds continue to grow and do good, not just now, but forever. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't have to be starting an own, their own fund. We have funds that individuals can contribute to. Uh, on focus areas like community mental health or uh, transportation or housing or funds for individual agencies, individual nonprofits. There are a lot of ways that people can make a difference, but collectively it all comes together and every year we grant out millions of dollars. 
in, to help the community. You actually do both. You do have uh, individuals who uh, establish funds we through do. the community foundation that are uh, that that do good in perpetuity that they uh, establish uh, on their own with an endowment or something. And then you also have individuals who just kind of add to the pot, as it were. Correct. We can meet a variety of needs, no matter what where somebody is in their giving cycle. Uh, we can help them make sure that they have a legacy in our community. Somebody told me a long time ago at a training that community foundations are for people who love their community to never be forgotten by their community. Yeah, And it's that idea that every single year, every time a grant comes from a fund, people are remembering the person who helped make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, Forever. Again, whether that's one person or a group of uh, exactly. individuals. Exactly. Uh, and, and the reason we bring this uh, up is because I think sometimes we think of the Community Foundation as uh, something that uh, very wealthy people will uh, contribute to and, and make happen. And it's not necessarily. There is certainly some of that, sure. but it's not necessarily everything that you do. We want to make sure that we are accessible to everyone in our community. That's one of the reasons that this year we are in honor of our anniversary starting the Acorn Fund where historically you had to, within three years, be able to establish a fund. Um, so that meant ten dollars to $25,000 to establish a fund. We still will do quite a bit of that every single year, mm-hmm. but we realize that there are folks that might need to take a little more time to get there. So you invest in the Acorn Fund, and we keep track of those gifts. And then whenever, however long it takes that you get to the point where you can start a fund, we'll let you know, and you can spin that off into your own fund to make an impact in the way that you design. And people do that in any number of ways. You were just mentioning, again, before we went on the air, uh, we were talking about how you're getting into really busy time with scholarship uh, season. So you do a lot of that uh, is maybe one of the more popular ways. We have scholarships that meet a wide variety of criteria, and we're really in the thick of it right now. We're going to start awarding those soon. Last year, we awarded over 200 scholarships, which Mm. means over $350,000 helping people in our community achieve their dreams. Uh, Whatever that might mean, whether that be a four-year, two-year technical or trade school, graduate education, uh, education-related mission trip, all of those different things are are because of donors at the foundation who have set up these funds. And what are some of the other ways in which donor dollars are uh, put to use uh, in the community, these funds are put to use? So when you think about in the 30 years that we've existed, we have granted more than $70 million. And what that means in, in, in real terms is we've helped support things like Flag City Honor Flight, Hope House Habitat for Humanity, uh, and the city mission helping house those in our community. We've helped with hunger. We've helped with the Performing Arts Center, the Hancock Parks District, uh, Gliding Stars, Miracle League, all of these different aspects. I would be hard-pressed to find anybody in our community that hasn't interacted with something that we have helped fund and is this all donor directed or do you have uh, individuals who come and say, you know, here's this uh, pot of money. This is the donation that I want to make. Use it as you see fit for the best uh, benefit of the community. We do a little bit of both. We do both. We yeah. do some. We have the community's endowment, which the community's endowment sometimes is referred to as unrestricted. Mm-hmm. And what that allows is that allows our board and staff to do what we do best, assess community needs and then award grants for nonprofit organizations really addressing our community's most pressing needs, whether they be housing, transportation, workforce development, food security, those types of things. We mm-hmm. also have a, a different types of funds that are donor-directed. So that could be the donor-advised funds, the scholarships, the, yeah. the agency and designated, those funds where the donor really has control over where those grants go every year. And we do both. Again, the reason to bring this up is uh, because people have that option. You're very flexible in terms of, like you said, meeting donors where they are. Right. And we are happy to talk to anybody who has questions or if you already work with somebody and you want to talk through either a plan for during your lifetime or a plan as part of your state, please reach out to us. We are happy to partner with everyone uh, to make sure that your legacy is exactly as you hope it will be. Now, as we mentioned, it's the 30th anniversary of the Community Foundation, and you have a number of things that are planned, uh, big things, especially later on in the year, uh, which we'll talk about in due course. But kicking off this 30th anniversary celebration with a mobile story walk, and this is uh, launching this week. Yes, it launched yesterday at Noon Rotary, and every week the story walk will show up somewhere different in Hancock County. And it talks about our timeline, our history some of the people who have made our work possible, and then the impact 
that that our grant making has done in the community. If your organization or your business is at all interested in hosting it, please let us know. Uh, but be on the lookout. And when you see it out in the community, take a few minutes to read to learn a little bit more about us. Were you surprised at all when you put together this uh, mobile story walk, this timeline, and all that has been? I mean, because you do it every day, you get kind of in the weeds, and it's sort of a, and you see the forest for the trees sort of thing. This is an opportunity for you even to step back and take a look at the big picture. When we, when I saw the statistics, the big numbers, the 70 yeah. million granted, the over 10,500 yeah. grants, the over 2,000 volunteers, mm-hmm. and the over 6,500 donors, that was remarkable to me. Yeah. Because you see what happens every year, but then when you take a step back, because of all of these things, because mm-hmm. of all of the donors, because of all the nonprofits in our community, because of all of the hard work that happened from Dale Dorney on, mm-hmm. we have been able to be where we are today. And it, and it was surprising, and it makes me even more incredibly grateful yeah. for everyone who has helped. And it's something that the entire community owns. Yes, we are the community's yes. foundation. Yeah, we are, we are here for everyone in our community, and we serve everyone in our community. Yeah. All of Hancock County. It's not just one individual or one company or something and, you know, patting themselves on the back. This is a community. Everybody owns this. It is. And that's why people often hear me say that I have the best job in Hancock (laughs) County. And I think our team would agree because how often do you get to have as part of your job Mm -hmm. every day we wake up and every day our goal is to help improve the quality of life in our community that we all love the bottom line the 30th anniversary of the uh, community foundation the finley hancock county community foundation uh it kicking off at this mobile story walk and it is at the marathon center right now at least this week so if you want to check that out that's where you go at least this week and then you're going to have that on the uh website and track it and all of that we will publish some of them some of them will let be a little bit of a surprise when you see Okay, very good. Uh, Again, uh, CEO Brian Therese with us uh, this morning. We get a link up for more information about what the Community Foundation does and how at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. Brian, thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate it so much. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks again to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. Check us out online at goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Ripped from the Pandemic Headlines, best-selling author James Rollins talks about his new thriller, Kingdom of Bones, plus a grand reopening of the improved and expanded Miracle Park will be held this weekend, making one of the community's greatest resources even better for those with special needs. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.